All right, everybody, we're back at it. 2022, happy new year to everyone. If you are hearing this, you have once again tuned to the Consequence of Habit podcast, and this is your host, JT. Well, housekeeping before we get this one started, man, I want to just, I just want to say how, how grateful I am to the Patriot Fund. Patriot Fund is an organization that helps support other nonprofits that are benefiting veterans. And I got a, I got a phone call Christmas Eve from the founder of the Patriot Fund uh, to tell me how they are investing in us. And I cannot overstate this enough by saying that uh, w- without them, uh, we wouldn't be able to do some of the things that we're going to be doing in 2022 uh, for our veteran community. So huge thank you to them. Also, huge thanks to Athletic Brewing Company. These guys have been ride or die with me from the very beginning. Uh, they didn't know it. They had no idea the impact that they were having in my life. And I don't, I don't even know if they understand the impact they're having on a lot of people's lives. Uh, so if you enjoy really good beer, uh, but you don't like hangovers uh, or DUIs, and if you do, you're, you're a psychopath. Uh, but if you don't enjoy those things, but you want the taste of amazing beer, it is dry January, uh, then then do yourself a favor. Be kind to yourself. Check out athleticbrewingcompany.com. Uh, order yourself some of the finest, well, the finest non-alcoholic beer on the market. Uh, use the promo code capital C-O-H-20 and get 20% off your order. All right, and that leads me to this week's guest. This week, I'm joined by Michael Segru. Michael's an author uh, he's a U.S. Air Force veteran, retired police sergeant, and most recently a mental health advocate. And before we get in this conversation, I want you guys to do me a favor. I want you to, I want you to get off any political soapbox you you may or may not be on. I guess it'd be hard to get off one if you're not on one. But uh, I just want you to go in this as open minded as possible, and I want you to to look through the eyes, or attempt to look through the eyes of somebody who's dealing with trauma on a daily basis, whatever their jobs are. Don't worry about how they've been portrayed in the media. Just think about what it would be like to have to go through to deal with trauma every single day. And if you do that for, for more than five seconds, I think you'll, you'll start to have a little more empathy um, and understanding of, of what our men and women in the uh, first responder community have been going through. You know, Michael went through some really traumatic things, which eventually... It cost him his job because he had to step away from uh, the profession he loved doing. And since then, he's been on a mission to help others just like him kind of deal with some of the, the mental stress and trauma that have gone along with, uh, with serving our community. That could be as a veteran, could be as a first responder. And I got news for you, everybody. Veterans and first responders do not have a monopoly on uh, stress and trauma. It affects us all. So I think he's got some great messaging, uh, for, for really, for anyone kind of dealing with these types of things. So. This was a fun conversation just because, Michael, uh, while our paths kind of intersect at points. That's enough for me. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, Michael Segru. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, JT, and today we are here with Michael Segru. Michael, thanks so much for joining me, man. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we spoke. I'm, I'm going to, first off, I'm going to start off by apologizing because I dropped the ball with, with an interview with you months ago. Um, I think I got a, a little overwhelmed with the podcast thing and started inviting way too many people, and it, it, it just didn't fit into my, you know, that, jo- that, that thing that pays the bills, my, my normal job. So... Uh, I want to say thank you for reaching back out to me and, and making this kind of happen. So, uh, we're going to get into some, we're going to get into some frontline wellness because it's something that I'm super passionate about. Clearly it is something that you've pursued for some time. Uh, before we jump into that though, if you could just give us a, a quick synopsis of, of, um, your work history, what you did for your career and, uh, we'll kind of take it from there. Absolutely. My law enforcement career started in the Air Force. I was a security forces officer. And basically that's anti-terrorism, force protection, nuclear security, air-based ground defense, and basic law enforcement mission. Uh, I started as a lieutenant and I actually got out as a captain in 2004. Uh, While I was in the Air Force, I did serve in Europe, 
South America, the Middle East, and all over the U.S. Um, I immediately transitioned into civilian law enforcement, and I got a job with the city of Walnut Creek, which is located here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I started out, you know, in training like most officers. In about a year and a half on, I became a field training officer and eventually was a detective and a undercover agent on a narcotics uh, state drug task force, and then eventually promoted to sergeant. Um, I medically retired due to PTSI in 2018, and now currently I'm working on a book and I'm a national speaker in regards to suicide prevention, officer wellness, and post-traumatic stress injury. And that's where the PTSI comes in. That, that, that might be a term that it, not everyone is, is familiar with. Um, how far were you from your, your retirement before the, the PTSI started really becoming uh, an issue for you, like where it was affecting kind of your everyday? So for me, I was actually quite a few years from retirement when the PTSD started. So my civilian career started in 2004, and the PTSI really started after a fatal shooting I was involved in, and that was at the end of 2012. And so really, the PTSI was from 2012 to 2018. And I was in denial for most of that time. I was suffering. My life was falling apart. And it wasn't until the end of 2016 to where I had the strength and courage to finally ask for help. And that's what started me on my path to recovery and where I'm at today. So had I still been working, um, I I planned on working until I was 57 years old. Mm. And I'm 46 now. I'll be uh, 47 in August. So I still had quite a few years left in my civilian law enforcement career. So one of the things I'm, I really uh, try to talk about on a, on a regular basis are some of the signs of the, these things coming. And then you mentioned the word courage. You mentioned the word courage of, of actually coming out because uh, these, you know, coming out and, and, and talking about, hey, I'm struggling and, you know, I'm having some issues going on. What was the initial reaction from, uh, the department, uh, when, when you, when you actually came to him and said, Hey, I'm, uh, I got something going on. So when I finally came out with that, the department itself was very receptive. Um, I called the on-duty watch commander and he, he talked to me for over an hour and he assured me that he was going to start making notifications and get the ball rolling and get me the help that I needed. So initially, you know, absolute kudos to my agency, as far as being there for me and getting me the resources that I needed. Um, but what I later found out was that several months into my recovery, and I have to tell you that my goal was always to go back to work um, because being a police officer to me was something I wanted to do since being a child. And there's nothing else I could have ever seen myself doing other than law enforcement. And so my goal was to go back and I was doing everything I possibly could to get better um, from therapy to group peer support meetings to attending a week long uh, retreat called the West coast post trauma retreat, even to eventually try medications, which I was totally against. And so I was fully engaged in my recovery and my treatment and everything else I have been my entire life. And what I found out was there was actually an administrator in my agency who didn't want me to be there anymore and tried to talk me into retiring and said, Hey, you know, we can make a deal here. And if you agree to retire, then we can make this easy on you and you can kind of go on your way and do what you need to do. And I have to tell you that, you know, for me that, that was unacceptable. I mean, to me, I thought this was family and this was, you know, my brothers and sisters, and I was willing to do anything for them. And I put my life on the line every single day. And what I did find out was that I was just a number filling a position and all my years of dedicated service, all the things I did really didn't matter when it came down to it. Mm. What did matter is they wanted a healthy person working the street and they didn't want somebody off on injury. And, you know, I've seen this happen to people with shoulder injuries, knee injuries, back injuries, but I think when it comes to mental injuries, PTSI, because of the stigma that's associated with that and the negative feelings when you hear, especially PTSD, which is why I don't want to call it that because the word disorder, there's an automatic negative connotation. And 
you know, people are fearful of that and they don't understand it. And I think they relate it to the term like 5150, which is what we deal with yeah. on the streets. You know, those are people that are gravely disabled and can't care for themselves or they're a clear danger to themselves. And that's not what PTSI is. PTSI is an injury caused to the brain. It's a physical, chemical, you know, injury that is caused by repeated exposure to trauma. And in many cases, and I'm talking about all first responders, it's oftentimes just numerous incidents, but then there's also oftentimes really big incidents. And that's what it was in my case is, you know, I had exposure to a lot of little incidents, but it was my fatal shooting, which is what actually pushed me over the edge. And and the sad thing is because of that stigma that I talked about, I suffered in silence for almost four years putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping I died in the line of duty eventually because I didn't have the courage or strength to raise my hand and admit that I needed help. And Mm. that's the sad truth. And that's why I do what I do is because I want people to know that there is help and there is hope. It's within these communities, especially. So you and I have run in some of the same circles. Um, I was Air Force also. I was out in California. I, I closed down McClellan Air Force Base uh, back in, shit, 99, 2000. Uh, so I, 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 know, uh, I know those communities. I know the first responder community very well. And when you said this administrator wanted uh, a healthy body, I think what you actually meant is they want the perception of a healthy body. And this is an argument I've had with, with lots of people, um, especially with, with how things are portrayed in the media. Now there's a lot of questioning that goes on uh, around first responders and their response to things. And, and this is not to, uh, cut slack to, to anybody uh, on decision-making, but I don't think very many people realize or, or truly think about the amount of trauma that these men and women are going through every single day. And I had another gentleman on here and, and man, he had a great, I mean, I wish I remembered the exact phrase, but it's, it's the expected, the normal expected response to this much trauma are some of the same, same things that, that people are suffering with. We shouldn't be surprised that, that these men and women are having these, these, uh, mental health issues. I mean, this, if you could talk a little bit more about the actual chemical process, because you, you compared this to a physical injury, and I've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about that exact thing. You know, if somebody broke a bone or they had diabetes or they had cancer, that's looked at it a certain way. But when we have these interpersonal relationships and mental health issues are perceived in a certain way, it really, it muddies the water. And it, hopefully that's going to change. Um, but explain that a little bit more with the process that happens in the brain and then how that manifests itself within an individual. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor or psychologist, but you know, there's technology available today where you can actually do brain imaging or do scans of the brain and you can compare, you know, what they call normal brains or people that have not been exposed to repeated trauma. And you compare that side by side with, a first responder or a combat veteran, you know, somebody who has really been exposed to repeated trauma and there are clear differences in these images and these scans on things that happen within the brain itself. And I do know that, you know, part of the brain, the amygdala, which is the primitive part of the brain that controls a lot of just natural reactions like fight or flight, or like it causes anxiety or whether or not you have panic attacks. And when you have PTSI, your amygdala is constantly firing off and you react in a way that people who haven't been exposed to trauma, you know, don't react. And the thing is, this is all natural though. This is all normal. So when this happens to the brain, this is the body's normal reaction. It's a protective mechanism that happens and people don't understand that. And so, you know, the argument is that let's say you have an officer that injures their knee, injures their back, whatever the case may be, a clear physical injury. People accept that. They say, you know what, we're going to send you to a specialist. You're going to go to physical therapy. You're going to get some injections. 
you know, maybe you're going to have to have surgery. Well, the same thing happens with PTSI. There's ways that you can heal PTSI. There's things that you can do. Uh, There's actual medical procedures, but there's things like talk therapy. There's EMDR. um, There's stellate ganglion block, which is fairly new. A lot of people don't know about these things to help you because that's the thing is first responders, you know, we don't want to hear about that stuff. We don't want to admit that we have a problem. We're usually in denial about these things. Mm. And the key is that we have to be open and receptive to treatment in order to heal, in order to get better. And I, you know, I want to be clear on this, that the road to recovery for PTSI, it's a long road and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of resources and the path to recovery is different for everyone. You know, certain things work for one person, but not for the other and vice versa. And so people have to be patient. But the reason why I do what I do is that if you address this trauma early on in your career, as it's happening and as it continues to happen, you're not going to get to where I got, which is getting to the point where I wanted my life to end Mm. to where I I lost almost everything in my life. You're not going to get to that point. So you can actually be proactive in this fight. You can change the culture. You can change the stigma and you can make it normal to talk about these traumatic incidents and to deal with them. Because what happens is we don't talk about it. We don't deal with it. And I equate it to like a jar, right? So you have an almost empty jar when you start your career. And as you're exposed to trauma, this jar slowly fills up and to the point where it overflows, like in my case, if you don't address it, but if you address it as it's filling up, that's not going to happen. So we have to change the culture. We have to make this something that we talk about on a regular basis and we make it comfortable for our first responders to talk about how these things affect them. Because like you said, we're human beings. That's the bottom line is we are human beings and nobody should be exposed to the amount of trauma that we are, but that's our job. And if we don't do it, who is? Yeah. I want to come at this from a couple different angles. I guess my first thought, I'm just going to say it before, before I lose it and my ADHD kicks in, but the, uh, one of, one of my biggest, uh, motivations in this, in this space is, is to talk to management, um, of these departments because if you're going to do it, I mean, uh, you, you want to do it because you care about your employees, right? I mean, that's the whole thing of, of a department, a job is, is you hope to have some supervision, some people looking over you that actually ha- that care about you. But if you're not doing it for that, if you're doing it just for a monetary reason, then you have to know the decision-making that goes into, a, you know, an, a job of a first responder. I mean, these are life or death decisions. And when you when you you have a workforce that isn't in a healthy place, bad things are going to happen. And it, unfortunately, that's just that's going back to human nature. We have this this um, this idea that men and women are robots, and they're always going to react the right way because they've they wear a badge. And unfortunately. Most of the time they do, but when you have people that are, are exposed to trauma and then they're, they're subduing it and they're pushing it back and they're dealing with, they're self-medicating, they're not sleeping, they're working hours that no one should be working, this constant night shift switching back and forth. And, and you can say, hey man, you signed up for it, but when you're 22 or 24 or wherever it is and you sign up for it, you're not thinking, hey, when I'm, f- when I'm 40, you know, I've gone through a couple of marriages. I drink t- way too much. I'm up way too late at night. Um, it's just not conducive to to a healthy thought process, and our and decisions uh, suffer uh, because of it. Moving on to the the other thing is is I I wanted to really cover it, and it, you've already said it. There's almost twofold to this. There's there's what you do before you know, this thing to keep you healthy. And then there's something to do after or truly, uh, uh, you know, you've gone past a certain point and now we have to address it. Uh, as far as a wellness goes, what has been just for you personally and, and, and what has been the most um, effective thing would you say in your process, you, you know, you mentioned recovery and it's a long process. What has been one of the things that's really kind of stuck out for you or has it just been this, you know, just a bunch of, of, 
of things, um, like a conglomerate of things that kind of helped you along? You know, there has been quite a few different things and people that have helped me along, but what comes to my mind first and foremost is I remember when I went to my first meeting, it was a basically a peer meeting for all first responders. It was a confidential meeting. It had nothing to do with my department. I actually found out about it from my therapist and they have these meetings all over the U S um, they have them all over the Bay area where I live. And so I found out about it and I ended up calling the phone number. I talked to a guy who was an active police sergeant in the city where the meeting was. And he kind of filled me in on what it was. And I, you know, I showed up and I really didn't want to walk in, but once I did, I sat down and I listened. And what I found was that I was not alone. The most powerful thing was when I heard stories from other police officers, firefighters, dispatchers and paramedics who were sharing these deep, dark, personal things with me. I mean, literally they didn't know who I was. You know, they've been going to these meetings for a while. I literally walked in on my first day and they welcomed me with open arms. There was no judgment and they literally bared their soul in front of me. They gave me that trust. And so I started going to these meetings every single week. And it probably wasn't until the fourth or fifth meeting that I got the strength and courage to start opening up and sharing. And, you know, part of me really expected just to see shocked looks on their faces, to see maybe get up and run away or roll their eyes at me. And, you know, the exact opposite happened. I mean, it was complete compassion and understanding. And I could see that I was genuine and from their heart. You know, nobody was judging me. If anything, they respected the fact that I was being open and honest and vulnerable. And that's, that's not what happens at police departments. That's not what happens in the locker room or in the lineup or when you're parked side by side in a patrol car with another officer, that isn't what happens, but that's my point. That's exactly what should happen because there wasn't a single person on my agency where I had that comfort level where I could share what I needed to share what I shared at these meetings eventually. There wasn't one single person, but had there been that culture at my department and had there been people that I trusted who understood what I was going through, I would have opened up to them because the facts are my agency, they had a peer support program. They did an annual training on mental wellness. You know, they checked the boxes and they had these things on paper, but nobody used them. Nobody believed in them. Yeah. Yeah. and that's the key is they have to believe in it and they have to trust it. Yeah. There, there has to be buy-in. And unfortunately in those worlds, when it's, when it comes from the department, most of the time it's looked at we, is it's another training class we have to do. And when it's packaged that way, getting buy-in is a very hard, hard thing to do. Um, I, I spoke to a couple of people, I believe you're on the board uh, uh, first in wellness Yes, I had I had them on, and and that's what we talked about. We talked about how, how do you get buy in because these communities they are not super open to talking about these things. I do think things are changing, and I and I certainly hope that this isn't something that offends anyone who's listening to this. But your experience, I mean, it's like the first day of walking to a twelve step program, right? Because you you have to go in and you have to admit, right, and you have to be vulnerable, and this is not something that people are comfortable with. And what you get from everyone around you is empathy. And, and um, they have your best interest in mind. And, and they want you to get this stuff out because they know they know what continuing down the same path leads to. They understand it. So it, it, it's a relief to be around your own. And I think the real key then is to try and spread that because if we can't have these things just in these rooms somewhere – there has to be a bigger understanding of, of what's going on out there. Um, yeah. And again, where I, it's, it's, I have these conversations and I, 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 I hope I'm not, uh, rubbing anybody the wrong way about saying about uh, saying that, but I, even within law enforcement, man, you, you tell people, Hey, I quit drinking and you'll get clowned for it. And then those same people that will reach out to you and go, Hey, how'd you do it? Because I'm struggling. And it's, I, 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 would you agree in some ways that, that that would be the same the same kind of thing? 
I agree 100%. I mean, it, the sad truth is, like you said, I, I've seen officers that give each other kudos for having, you know, extramarital affairs, yeah. for drinking, for doing, you know, basically dangerous behavior that's self-destructive. And, you know, you hear the attaboy and you p- hear people joking about that. And I mean, really, that's not family. That's not love. I mean, that is all superficial is what it is. And, you know, what really blows my mind is that, and I think about this often, is that when I was on the job, I have no doubt that my partners would follow me into an active shooter situation and be there 110%. I have, you know, no doubts they would follow me into a heinous domestic violence in progress or any call for that matter. But why is it I can't count on those same people to be there for me as a human when I need them the most. And that's, that is the real issue that we're talking about here is why is that the case? And, you know, part of it, I think is we have this, this culture and the mentality that starts in training. It starts in the police Academy, but also for the military, it starts in basic training and specialized training. And we're taught that we're invincible. We're almost superhuman and that we are going to always take charge and quell any situation, no matter how dangerous or violent it is, but we're going to take charge and we're going to be okay. And we believe that until we almost die, like in my case, and then our whole world turns upside down. And, you know, the real strength is just being human and talking about that, not pretending like we're invincible because we're not invincible and we're not fooling anybody. And if we're not taking care of ourselves, not only are we suffering, but our families back home, which is much more important than any job, they're truly suffering. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fact. I mean, I'm sure you've said it a million times, and, and I've talked about it on here, but uh, the image of, of a soldier, the image of law enforcement, firefighters, this hero thing, you know, you, you don't grow up and, and Superman never had to worry about anxiety or depression or alcoholism, right? It's just... You, so when we, when we put these labels on people and we, ch- and these, these men and women, they try, they try to live up to it. And I think that's one of the hardest parts of, of coming forward to say, you know, it, actually, um, I'm really struggling, especially when nobody's around, when nobody's around is in, I'm, I am not comfortable in my own skin. Um, I'm miserable. And when people are miserable, misery likes company and they will make their families and everyone else around them miserable as well. What is so you've started this process and first of all, you have an absolutely insane following on on LinkedIn. It's unbelievable, man. I mean, just kudos on that because this whole networking thing is it's really what it's about, right? But getting this message out. How did this become your true mission? Because I understand that you personally, and I understand you going through this in recovery and maybe you want to spread the word, but you've really taken this to a whole nother level. Uh, how did that process start for you and, and, you know, what keeps that fire going? So really I owe it to one person because I never planned on this. I never envisioned it. I didn't even want it. And what happened was there was a, a former officer who I didn't know personally. His name was Danny bird and he was from uh, Santa Clara County and he was a podcast host and he had seen me on LinkedIn because at that point I wasn't posting personal things about me on LinkedIn. I was just posting general education stuff on like PTSD and suicide prevention. And he basically hit me up and he's like, Hey, I want to interview you. I want you on my show. And I was like, I don't want to do it. I have zero interest in that. I'm not going to do it. And he basically pestered me for a full year until I finally agreed to do it. And he's like, look, I'm going to drive from San Jose. I'm going to drive two and a half hours to you. I'm going to set up a camera. I'll meet you wherever you want. I just need an hour of your time. That's it. And so he put me in a position where I accepted and I didn't want to back out. So I met him actually at a Mimi's cafe in the back room. Um, He's had a video camera, everything already set up by the time I walked in. And I remember I sat down thinking, man, we're gonna have some good breakfast, have some coffee, get to know each other. He's like, look, I'm in a big hurry. I got to get back to San Jose. We're going to start this thing right now. Wow. And, um, you know, I look at it, I watched that interview actually, at least a couple times a year. It's my very first interview. Um, I think it's probably my best interview actually. And once he shared that interview, a couple things happened. The first was for me personally, I felt this huge, huge, huge burden lift off my shoulders because at that point 
I hadn't really talked to anybody at my old agency about really why I was off or what happened to me. I was very closed off and I was very ashamed and embarrassed to admit all these things that I went through and more importantly, all these mistakes that I made because I made a lot of mistakes. And once it was out there, it's like, I I had no more control. I couldn't, I couldn't keep it in. Like any, it was out there for anybody to hear, to watch, to listen to. And it was so freeing. And what happened next was I started literally getting messages from around the world, from first responders telling me that what I said just really, really resonated with them. And they started sharing their personal stories with me. Mm. And that's really what got me started on this. I don't, I think if that would have never happened, I wouldn't be on this path. And so one podcast led to another I've done them all over the world now. I think I've done like 25 interviews. Um, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book with a well-known psychologist. We're about 80% done. I'm now a national speaker. I've spoken at statewide law enforcement conferences to the California National Guard. Um, It's actually become a passion of mine now to where this is all I want to do. And, you know, I just want to share my story in the hopes that it gives people the strength and courage to raise their hand up and ask for help and to know they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. When when you're in front of, when you're in front of the, you know, talking to these law enforcement organizations, you know, we can, we, you know, we get doctors in here and we can say, Hey, this is going to be the physical response to trauma. This is what's going to happen. Are the solutions that are being presented even are they being taken seriously? Because I would imagine they, they have to be fairly drastic compared to what's out there now. Um, and then the second part of that question is, what are some of the, the, the changes that maybe you're, you're starting to see uh, being made? You know, in, in my case, as you mentioned, when I speak, I, I get to have the interaction after I speak. So I have people that come up to me and I I remember when I spoke to the California national guard and there was spoke about like 400 people. But after I spoke, there was a one-star general and several full bird colonels down to airman basics that pulled me aside and came up and started just sharing very personal things with me. And what I thought was very profound is when you have a one-star general, anyone who's familiar with the military rank structure, a one-star general is like God. I mean, any general rank is like God in the military. And this general is the one who arranged to have me come in and speak. And when he shared what he had been through, I mean, it blew my socks off that this guy was still in uniform and still leading. And that gave me hope that there are, courageous leaders out there like this general who are leading from the front and showing their vulnerability and looking out for their people. And so, you know, I've seen a change. I've seen it with specific agencies where they've asked me to come in, but that's the key is getting an agency to make this happen. That's the first step. And I think it's a great step. I think it's the biggest hurdle is having people like me and there's lots of us out there bring them in, have them talk to the officers, bring them into the actual police academy, you know, bring them in early and change that culture. Or on the flip side of that, I want to tell you a quick story. I spoke at a law enforcement agency here in Northern California, Vacaville. I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. Outstanding chief who just retired. Um, I sat down with him for several hours, um, days before I spoke. And he was, you know, talking to me in depth about, what they do at Vacaville PD to basically make this normal, to talk about things that are bothering them, to talk about trauma, to talk about these incidents. And he shared a story with me and I later met this Lieutenant, but there was a, as you mentioned, kind of like that checkbox training, that peer support training that we all have. And so the entire department was at this peer support training and this Lieutenant out of the blue, it wasn't planned. He decided to open up and share his deep, dark personal experiences after being involved in several critical incidents and the toll that it took on him personally and on his family. And the thing was nobody in that room other than the chief had any idea Mm. because we're so good at putting up a front 
and fooling everybody, at least at work, that, you know, nothing is affecting us, nothing's bothering us. And that is true leadership, being in a position to make a difference and being 100% vulnerable and open and setting the example. That's what we need more of. Dude, you're, you're talking my language, man. This whole thing of packaging something and presenting it, it's all bullshit. It's bullshit. You know, I'm not saying everyone has to walk around and talking about their feelings all the time. That's not what I'm saying. There's a time and a place for it. And then there's recognizing when people are struggling. You mentioned you get these these data boys when you, when you, you found out somebody spent the night out drinking or they've got, you know, stuff going on outside their marriage. If you don't recognize those as as somebody who's looking for a little dopamine hit, that they're trying to feel good short term, but overall this is this is a sign that somebody's in, in, in they're struggling. They need they need some help. Um, you mentioned the academy. The academy to me is is the I mean just like it's the foundation for a law enforcement career. The academy to me is really where this stuff has to be taught because that invincibility is really driven home right at that time. And this is where everyone feels invincible. But to really let people know, I mean, and this doesn't go just for for law enforcement, first responders, military. I mean, this is just young men and women in general. You need to know that that life is going to, it's... It's going to drag you, drag you down and you're going to be suffering and it's okay. You don't have to package it as this, this GI Joe character. It's okay to be, to, to be struggling a little bit. It's okay to ask for help. Matter of fact, that's strength. That's what real strength is. It's, you know, I, I've said it, I've said it on here a bunch of times, man. I, when, when people, you know, I, I always kind of fall back on, on, on alcohol and cause that was one of my, my issues and, and and people say, well, I can't, I can't come out and say it, man, because it's a, it's, a, it's a weakness. I'm like, no, no, no. No, you not saying something is weak. That's weak. Doing the same shit over and over, that's weak. Strength comes from actually being a grown-up and facing your problems. And if management in these, these communities, do, they don't see that, then, then, then they're the problem. They're part of the problem. Um, but I'm, you get me all fired up, Mike. You got me, you got me fired up. <laughs> You know, but it, it's a reality. And, and the thing is, you know, that is strength asking for help. That is true courage. But I truly believe that was weakness and it was shame for me. And that's why I didn't do it. And I don't, I didn't see until I'm where I'm at now that it's actual pure strength and courage. In fact, it's the bravest thing I've ever done. And I mean, how ironic is that, that we're teaching our people the polar opposite of what real strength is. And when you mentioned the police academy, what blows my mind is, you know, at least here in California, I remember I went to the academy. I think we had 880 hours of post, you know, hours that we had to do to get our, our basically our certificate to become a basic police officer. And how hard would it be to have somebody come in, somebody who almost lost everything, or maybe even somebody who tried to kill themselves, or maybe a survivor of someone who actually did kill themselves and bring them into the academy for an hour, hour and a half max, so they can share their personal story. And, and that's the thing is some of these solutions are so easy mm-hmm. and they're, they're not expensive, Nope. but yet nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to make it a priority. I remember I learned about, you know, other people on the street with their mental illness, but we didn't talk anything about the toll of the job. We didn't talk about trauma to us, about the things we were going to see. We were too busy driving cars and shooting guns and doing death tech, mm-hmm. all the exciting stuff. But we need to teach the real stuff, the stuff that's going to save our officers' lives. Because one thing I haven't mentioned that you already know is that officers are much more likely to die by their own hands than the hands of another. And that is a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes into the habits, man. That goes into, you know, I, I wish this was like a, you know, you just took a pill and all of this stuff fixed itself. But just like most problems, it's multifaceted, and there's there's a lot of different ways to go about this. We talk about stigma of coming forward with, with, with mental health issues, and I think within these communities, the stigma that goes around goes with 
some of the things that can really help people. And, and they, those goes into the holistic things, things like meditation, things like breath work, um, the, the physical activity, you know, just like the habits that we talked about before, the bad habits that, that give these little dopamine hits, but overall make you feel like crap. Well, on the flip side, that's the great thing about habits is there's the good ones. There's these other things that you can do. And we need to be talking to, about these things to these communities and letting them know if you're persistent, there's positive things. There's feelings of pride that come along with these that you're not going to get from a side piece or from drinking a 12-pack every night. You're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to be better at your job. You're going to be a better father uh, mother, you know, all of these things. And these things are just, they're not talked about. Maybe you talk about, li- you know, how much you bench in or, or, or how much you, you know, lift in or something like that. But um, it's this, this merging of communities. Again, something else I've said, you, you know, we're taking these, these yogis from, from the seventies and eighties and, and we, but we need some of it. We need this emotional awareness because a lot of people, they don't, they don't even know they're struggling. They don't know it. They just, they just know they keep doing things to feel good short term and they don't even know why they're doing it. And then, it was, and then until it's too late, you know, it's catching these things early on. How did you know, that one, go ahead? One thing that I've, I've found in my work that I do, cause I do a lot of volunteer work. Um, I'm a peer for the West coast post-trauma retreat, but oftentimes first responders don't realize how messed up they are until they retire. And that's because that's when they have nothing but time to stop and think, think about the job, think about the toll that it took. You know, we're good when we're operational. We have that uniform on, we're at work. And that's why so many of us just keep working overtime and tons of overtime and staying away from the home and staying away from the family. And so we don't give ourselves time to digest it and to think about it. But the real issue is when these officers leave their departments and not just retirement, but I've seen a lot of officers when they go off on a physical injury, like a shoulder, a knee or a back, and then they're off for a few weeks and they start realizing their quote unquote family isn't there for them and nobody's reaching out to them because they've already forgotten about them. That's when all that trauma and all those things that have been affecting them for years and years and years is now all coming out at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, now they're stuck at home and they're isolating and they feel helpless and there's nobody they can reach out to. And that's when bad things happen. It is. Yeah. You don't have that distraction, right? A lot of this is this, you, you distract yourself with work or whatever it's going to be. And then you have that identity wrapped into it, to this job because it's, it's what inherently happens. You surround yourself with these people doing the same thing because they get you, they understand you. And when that's gone, that's a dangerous thing. You know, if, if you're not in, in the right mind space and you're left out there, you're an island Unfortunately, the same coping mechanisms that maybe you're, you got those attaboys are really going to have some tolls, you know, really going to be detrimental. Uh, what were some of the first signs that if you look back, because like you said, it's after you get away from that. And you, I would imagine the more you distance yourself from that, the more you can really start to see, oh, yeah, yeah, here were some signs. Here were a couple times where I'm probably not acting the way I would have if I was in a, in a, in a healthy space. Looking back at that, what were some of the telltale signs that you think that you can really kind of say, yeah, that's not good? You know, one of the earliest things on is that I didn't talk about the job to my family or to my spouse. So I didn't talk about when I was having a bad day or when something bad happened, I was just in a bad mood. And so they thought it was them. They didn't think it was because of the job. And so I really thought that I could keep the job separate from my family life. And the fact are, is they're intertwined. And your family needs to understand, you know, what's going on, the things you're dealing with. They don't need to know in a lot of detail, but Hey, if you had a bad, let's say child, you know, call that day or a fatal car accident, you need to communicate that with your family. And I didn't do any of that. That's one of the biggest mistakes that I did. But what I did do was I isolated, I distanced myself. I started shutting myself off from all like social events. I didn't want to go to family events. I didn't want to be around other people. In fact, I didn't want to be around my spouse. I just wanted to be in my room with my blackout shades, drink wine and just hope I could drink myself to sleep and hope this was all a nightmare that I would wake up from and, you know, life would be good again. 
And, and like you said, that just made things worse. And it repeated the cycle to where eventually I lost my marriage. You know, my health started going down. I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, I was sued federally. I mean, I was losing everything. And my solution was, it was always the same. Drink more, isolate, be in denial, and don't share my feelings with anybody. And I became a very angry, unsympathetic person. I became a horrible supervisor and I was unapproachable because I didn't want to hear what other people had to say. I don't want to hear their problems because in my view, their problems were nothing in comparison to mine. Hmm. It, it's ironic that when you start helping other people work through those problems, the effect that it has on you, isn't it, isn't it strange you can get so wrapped up in your own stuff and not that it's, it's a cure you know, there's, there's this thing, they talk about even like petting a dog does this thing for you and they go, you know, that helps with anxiety and they, and they go, well, why is that? Because you're taking your attention away from yourself and you're putting it on some, on something else. Um, and there's this really therapeutic effect, uh, to that. And I think it's one of the reasons like service work is such a big deal within the 12 step program. It's kind of, again, you're, you're, that's not what you're doing, but you are doing service work. And I imagine that feeling, uh, that comes along with that has to be a really great thing. Absolutely. But you know, the, the thing is those meetings I talked about, the one I actually went to wasn't a 12 step format and um, not all meetings are that way, but you know, that structure and that mentorship, that's a big deal. You know, having somebody that sponsors you or having somebody that is looking out for you that you can call anytime day or night, that's going to pick up that phone and they're going to drop everything they're doing to help you out. I mean, that, that, I mean, makes a change. That's what saves lives. That's love, man. That's love. That's, that is, that is getting outside of yourself for another person. And, um, yeah, it's amazing. And, and it's unfortunate there's stigma when you say 12 step, because I think everyone in the world, I don't care what your everyone's got vices, everyone consequences just may not be as severe. Now I don't care if you're the, the, the homeless person addicted to, to heroin or you're the highly successful entrepreneur that can't get off his phone or can't stop working. We're all just, we all have our things. Everyone can use a 12 step. <laughs> you start looking at why you do what you do and the emotions associated with it or or the actions because of the emotions that you're sitting around with, man, it's just so beneficial. But um, let's talk about the book. You said you're about 80% done. Let's let, one, let's talk about your, your, uh, is it co-author? Is that, am I, am I, am I saying that right? Co-author? Correct. Yeah, actually. And her name is Dr. Shauna Springer, or she's known as Doc Springer. She's a psychologist and she spent most of her career working with military combat veterans and first responders. But I owe this whole project to her, to be honest with you. She's making this dream a reality. She's an amazing writer, a gifted person, and she's dedicated to helping our warriors, both in the military and on the streets. And so we've teamed up together on this book. It's called Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And the structure of the book is that there's going to be about 13 or 14 chapters and it goes all the way back to my childhood until present day. And every chapter is broken up into two sections. The first section is in my voice telling my story. And the second part of every chapter is her separate section where she actually does all the analysis and the explanation to explain why all these things are happening and why we're doing what we're doing. And the beauty about this book is that this book is for everybody. I mean, it's for the first responders, it's for the military, the veterans, but it's for their family, for their loved ones. It's for anybody on the street because this is going to really open up people's eyes as to the things that we see and how we react to them. And the fact that we're all human and that the way we react to this stuff is normal. And so I really think this book is going to save lives and I'm really hoping that it does. Um, but this, this is unbelievable. And like I said, it's honestly a dream I thought would never come to reality. And it's thanks to Dr. Shauna Springer. She's making it happen. I, I love the premise of it. 
I like that idea of, of breaking it down. Well, I, I've got a couple of things I want to cover on that, but I, one of the, the most powerful things I think we can do with having these discussions, and this was something I kind of brought up before I hit record here to run by you, but this human condition thing is what connects us all. And in a world where we're separated constantly, you know, the media does their job. I, I did this, this corny little public service announcement and said, you know, when you're a kid and you watch pro wrestling, you always knew who the good guy and the bad guy was, right? Like it, it was clearly defined. But now that's kind of dictated by what news agency you watch or where you get your media. But what actually connects us is being human. And, and I, when you're in a healthy place and you can have empathy towards other people, then that makes this connection happen and, and you, can, you can deal with people in a much different way. You know, you can have, just like you said, I was a, I was a, a, a tough supervisor. I didn't want to hear your shit. There's a lot of people that don't that walking around that don't want to hear other people's shit because they're not in a healthy they're not in a healthy place. And when and when you can have a little empathy towards other people and not walk around on guard all the time, then uh, it, it's just going to make things go a lot smoother. So I think that is a huge part of having these conversations. I think it makes it for a better officer. I think it makes it for a better officer because you're able to deal with people on the street a lot better as well. Um, I had something, go ahead. I'd like to give you one example on that. That's actually, for me, it was, it was almost profound, but, um, you know, I spent a couple of years undercover on a state drug task force. And most of my career, even before that was focused on drug users, addict drug dealers. And in my recovery work, I've worked with a lot of alcoholics and addicts and it's really opened up my eyes into what these people are really going through. And, and what I found was most of these people that are using drugs and abusing alcohol, it's because of trauma. It's because of things that happened in their life, whether it was as a child or growing up or throughout their life. And I've really seen the other side of that. But when I was working on the job, it was black and white to me. It yeah. was, you know, if you had a minuscule chargeable amount of methamphetamine or heroin or whatever the case was, you're going to jail on a felony. I didn't care. I didn't want to hear your story. The facts are you're guilty and that's all that matters. Yeah. And what I found is that, no, these are people, these are people that are suffering. These are people that have their own lives. They have their own families. They have their own struggles. And, you know, I've actually, like I said, met a lot of first responders who have become addicts and alcoholics. And it's, it's no different than the person on the street. These are human beings, but I never, ever saw it that way. I just, for whatever reason, I never saw it that way. And so like you're saying, I look at people in general, totally different. I don't judge people that way. I don't assume things. If anything, I assume that they've got, they're having a bad day or something's going on in their life. That's causing this. Yeah. That's usually the first sign that I'm not in a good space is when I, when I find myself not doing that. When I, when I come to assumptions right away, that usually means I'm, I'm, I got something going on between my ears. Um, it does change a lot. And it, and it is funny, right? You don't even see it. You go, Hey, well, this person, look, it's just a druggie. They're a druggie. And, and here I am, uh, trying to disappear just like they are. Cause I didn't, wasn't comfortable. Again, it just comes back to this human experience. It is tricky, though, right? You're still a law enforcement officer. You still have a job to do, and you still have to have to you have to arrest people. Um, but but when you come at it that way, I think you're one. You're able to talk to people in a much different way. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's See, that, it's God. That's the key, though, is what you're saying there. So you know, I remember being on the job and always being in a hurry going call to call and getting things done. But how long does it take for an officer to stop? And I'm, and I'm talking about when it's safe to do so. So let's say you go to a situation or let's say you even got in a struggle with somebody or you're arresting somebody, but once the situation is physically safe and things have slowed down, why can't we explain things better? Why can't we explain to the person, Hey, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're going here. This is why you have to do this we're always so short and we're always so 
righteous and we make assumptions that they know what's going on. But I think most of the public doesn't understand our procedures. They don't understand the laws. They don't understand the things that we have to do when we arrest somebody or when we go to a call and we have to maintain people's safety and keep control, they don't understand that. So I think we need to do a better job and be more patient. Like you said, and talk to them as a fellow human being. And again, when it's safe to do so. Sure. Sure. There's a time and place for everything. You know, sometimes somebody's got, has to be taken down and cuffed and that's part of it, but there, you can avoid a, a lot of stuff, you know, coming at it the right way but again it comes to buy-in you have to have the buy-in it can't be this hey it's verbal judo time from the department and and you just have to repeat what they say back to them and and make them feel good that that you really have to you have to be in a place again going back to emotional awareness of going man this person really they're in crisis uh and when it's safe then we're gonna you know deal with it in a a way and try and de-escalate this as much as possible um, and this doesn't go for everybody, but there, you know, there's always guys, they're, they're ready to go. Cause it's, it's a way, it's a way to get that out. It's a way to, you know, there's a dopamine hit that comes along with, with being physical. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. I might take that part out. <laughs> but, uh, so is there, Michael, is there anything else you want to cover here? Something else you really want to kind of plug and, 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 and talk about? Um, I just want to make people aware of of two programs. Uh, One I mentioned earlier, the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. And this is a week-long retreat for all first responders, so dispatchers, firefighters, paramedics. It's an absolutely amazing program. It started in California, but now they actually have locations throughout the U.S. And it is a life-changing program. It's not a cure-all, but it's going to open that door that you need opened to start addressing what needs to be addressed. And when I talked about those meetings and, and meeting other first responders who were opening up and sharing and being vulnerable, that's what that retreat is all about. And it's a combination of peer support, of clinicians, of therapists and chaplains. And I, I can't speak enough about it, but you know, if anybody's listening to this, just Google the West Coast post-trauma retreat and they have a sister program called the SOS program which is for spouses and significant others and let's face it you know if we're suffering our family members are suffering that that's the bottom line and if we need help I guarantee you that our family members need help as well and so the beautiful thing about this program is that once you go through the west coast post-trauma retreat your significant other or spouse is eligible to go through the SOS program at no charge. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm going to have links yeah. to both those uh, in the show notes. Uh, Thank sure. you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there is one other program. It's called Save a Warrior. And this program, though, the difference is, well, there's a couple differences, but this one is open to military, active duty veterans, but it's also open to first responders. It's almost a week. It's peer driven. Um, it is for males and females, but they run them separately for a reason. Yeah. But the second program actually focuses on the childhood trauma. And we call this complex PTS where you have the childhood trauma and then you have the work trauma related or topped on top of that. So the facts are that many, many first responders have some form of childhood trauma. In many cases, it could be very mild, like an emotionally distant parent but it could also be very severe, like physically abused or sexually abused. And it's not by accident that we choose this profession of being first responders or even the military for that matter. And so this program, Save a Warrior, focuses on that. And the beauty of it, there is no cost to Save a Warrior. It is all funded by donations. All you have to do is get yourself there. They have two locations, one in California, one in Ohio. You can apply online. You just Google save a warrior. It takes five minutes. They'll set up a rostering phone call and somebody will call you. And within an hour phone conversation, they will determine whether or not that program's for you. That is so great. That, and I've said this a bunch of times, man, where there is, if you think there's a huge difference between somebody who picks a life of crime and someone who picks a, a life of law enforcement not always, but there's a lot of times we are cut out of the same piece of wood. 
And a lot of it comes back to that trauma uh, as, as a kid and, and wanting to feel good and, and, you know, how you go about it and needing that adrenaline that goes along with that. Um, so I think that's fantastic. I think it's a fantastic program. I'm definitely going to be posting about that, not just the show notes. I'm going to be looking into this and, and try and get that out there uh, some more. I think it's great. Michael, I really I appreciate you coming on here. I enjoyed this conversation very much. I think it's it's an important one, I, and I feel like we should uh, we should definitely do this again sometime because I I love the work you're doing. Absolutely. I mean, we could talk for hours. To be honest with you, there, yeah. there's so much to be said and so much that needs to be done. But this is a start. And like I said, I hope anybody that's listening, if you're suffering in silence, ask for the help because there's help out there and there's absolute hope and. I'm living proof of that. There's a whole new life on the other side. So you deserve it. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Michael. All right, that's a wrap. Like I said, everybody, happy new year. It's going to be a good 2022. It's got to be. Thank you guys for checking this out. I appreciate any, leave me some feedback. Don't be shy. Jump on there and tell me how I'm doing. Good, bad, indifferent. Doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter. What matters is you actually take the time to do it. I I would greatly appreciate that. Uh, Thanks to Michael Screw for coming on and sharing his story, and I will catch you guys next week.